You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, guys? And it's gal, Q&A time again. Guy and gal. It is Q&A time. We made it to the end of another season, our 10th season. I had so much fun this season. Like I know for the listeners and for us, it was unconventional in terms of like what you've come to expect from Knowing Faith. We did a lot more just kind of behind the scenes personality episodes, but we wanted season 10 to be special. I had a lot of fun. I like the surprises. It just was a good time. Um, I really enjoyed this season. And I got to say, I know we say this every Q&A episode since we've started this podcast. Thank you for listening. We really do Mm -hmm. feel like we have the best audience in podcasting. Uh, Everybody treats uh, each other with civility in the comments. Our Patreon community is so kind. I love how they respond to one another and questions on episodes. So just thank you for being civil in the dumpster fire that is the internet. (laughs) And thank you for catching the, the, the vibe of the show that it's charity, curiosity, and conviction. Those things work best when they work together. So thank you for listening. Thank you for following along. As always, you asked wonderful questions. You asked them on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and more questions than we have time for. But we're going to jump into them here. Uh, and, and and when I can, I'll mention your name. If your name was like in your handle, I'll mention your first name. Some of you have very creative social media handles. <laughs> and I have decided I'm not going to risk cancellation by misarticulating your very <laughs> creative, your very creative social media handles. I'm just going to, if your name was clearly in there or if I could deduce it, then I've put it in here as best I could. But if you asked a question and uh, you have a very creative social media handle, then it's in here. It's just I'm not going to try to get it. Is that fair, guys? I'd say it's, it's a... Yeah, as long as somebody's social media handle isn't Shatim, like 197 <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> there are somebody's trolling you already. Going through the questions <laughs> that Engineer Brad sends to me, I'm like looking at the social media handles and I'm like, I don't know if that's like a fun pet name that you put into your social media handle or like a I middle school nickname. I think Jen went out and made a social media handle uh, just yeah, to troll you. Yeah, I have burner you. accounts for uh, days. <laughs> There we go. There we go. All right. Well, let's start here. Why is baptism and the rules surrounding baptism so tricky? This was just, that was how the question came in. So I don't necessarily. The rules? R-O-L-E-S? No, the rules. Rules. Like guidelines. Rules. They're more like guidelines. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Why is baptism and the guidelines surrounding baptism so tricky? I, I don't know what you have in mind, but I'll. Let's take a JT, just take a shot into why is baptism so tricky? Maybe different views on baptism. Why is it so contested? Yeah, I mean, I think it's before we maybe talk about some of the trickiness of baptism, it's important to also realize the simplicity of baptism. This is one of the first acts of obedience for people who are followers of Christ, and it's simply a picture, a demonstration, and act of grace on God's behalf, as he's acting too, of people who've been dead and are now alive, people who were walking with hearts of stone and have been given hearts of flesh, or those who are in the domain of darkness and now in the kingdom of God's Son. So let's not overcomplicate it. This is one of the rites. Uh, it's the initiatory rite into the family of God that is simple, just like uh, being born. Baptism demonstrates that we have been born again and have been invited into the kingdom of God. So let's that that's simple. Yep. Uh, the, the, I would imagine the rules that this person is referring to is who can get baptized, mm-hmm. uh, who should we baptize, and maybe even who should be doing the baptizing. Yeah. Uh, the first one I'll just take simply as a as a Baptist. I think the the rules around baptism that I would that I would most likely put forward are in twenty seven accounts of baptism in the Book of Acts. My reading of Acts is that baptism happens after belief, and so. That's one of the things that I put forward at our church that when we just baptized, we baptized 22 people at Storyline this past weekend, and all of them have believed the gospel, have repented from their sin, and want to follow Jesus. And so uh, we would not baptize somebody who's not a Christian. We would not baptize somebody who doesn't want to follow him. And we would baptize somebody who would come to us and say, I was baptized as a baby, but I didn't understand the gospel, and I'd like to follow Jesus in baptism. So that and we, I would personally say they haven't been baptized yet, so that's still their first baptism. They haven't been re-baptized. 
Uh, and the other one, maybe it's related to who can do the baptizing. Some churches would say only ordained ministers of the gospel should baptize, whether that's an elder or deacon, however that church works. That's not my position. I don't think there's really any rules around who's doing the baptizing. I would say that it ideally happens in the life of the local church, overseen by uh, the elders, by by the deacons, that they're the ones who are kind of helping govern who are we allowing to come forward. However, yesterday we had a dad baptize his son, his daughter, and then his wife. He's not on staff. He's not a part of our church, but he's somebody who who helped share the gospel with his family, and his family then came to faith, and he's now, that kind of reminds me of a household baptism in Acts. Mm-hmm. He comes to faith, and then the family comes to faith yeah. following him. So I, I think that's probably what they're getting at with the rules around baptism. Do you have anything else in mind, Kyle or Jen? Yeah, I want to, mm-hmm. I have a. I have another question to ask. Any hot, okay. any hot takes on spontaneous baptism? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll jump, can I jump into, can I jump into the deep yeah. one first? Get it? Get it. I I used to be a lot more skeptical about spontaneous baptism, to be honest. Uh, You know, one of my first classes in seminary was historical theology and uh, early church history. And the professor kind of really highlighted that there were certainly spontaneous baptisms in scripture, but a lot of these spontaneous baptisms were of Jewish men and women who understood the Old Testament prophecies, who understood the story of Scripture, who understood who the Messiah was supposed to be. And so when they come to faith, like, a lot was already in place. It was kind of putting literally the capstone of the cornerstone in place. You're like, okay, my whole life makes sense now, and I understand the story of Scripture. As Gentiles or pagans, Romans, Spaniards were coming to faith, they were coming out of kind of pagan understandings of who God was or who the gods were. And that then required a lot more catechism leading up to baptism. Mm -hmm. And so the early church actually developed a two to three year process of catechizing Christians. This would be moral catechism, theological catechism, spirit. They would actually go to your neighbors yeah. and say, does this person love God and love neighbor? Mm-hmm. And if, if your neighbor was like, I don't even know who this guy is. He's never loved me. They wouldn't baptize wow. you because they're like, you're not, you're not following Christ. And so, and they wouldn't allow you to take communion yet. So you'd be a catechumen who, who was, who had to refrain from communion, get wait two or three years basically do I mean, something equivalent of like the Forge program or the Institute, mm-hmm. like learn scripture, learn theology, make sure you're not a Gnostic or an Arian or a Nestorian, and then they would eventually baptize you. So I used to be very, in our a previous church that we all worked at had like an eight-week baptism yeah. class. It's like we, there is, the guardrails were up. And so I understand that. And I have a lot of sympathy. And the reason why is because we want to make sure we're baptizing people who are Christians, that we are offering genuine assurance of faith, that we're seeing mm-hmm. fruits of the spirit. Yeah. However, over the last few years, and now as a lead pastor, I think about this differently. And I'd be much more inclined to spontaneous baptism. If somebody can articulate the gospel, uh, that we're not doing some kind of like emotional mm-hmm. appeal in order to manipulate mm-hmm. people or like some churches will like seed the audience of like, we're going to put two or three people in the audience who are getting, who are, we know are getting baptized today and they're going to come up spontaneously to get baptized. So other, other, that yeah, stuff's that's gross. gross. That's disgusting. But if it's obvious that God just saved somebody, so like we had a situation a few years ago where a guy had been coming to our church for about a year. His dad had got baptized. He was driving to go pick up his mom to come to our church. He was listening to some worship music and just really felt this overwhelming sense of, I'm supposed to get baptized today. Calls his mom because he didn't have my number. His mom calls me and says, you know, this, this, my son wants to get baptized today. When are you guys doing baptisms again? It's like, we're actually doing them today. He shows up and I say, can you, can you explain the gospel to me? He explains the gospel and we baptize him. He's sitting in the front row with me, like sobbing, weeping, snotty, like just because he understands the gospel now. So that kind of spontaneity, yes. The kind of spontaneity that's more manipulative, emotional, we're kind of seeding the audience. Man, that stuff's gross. I don't want anything <laughs> to do with that. Kyle, any thoughts? That was a long, that was a long answer. No, I mean, I, I, I largely agree. I think I'm probably a little bit more, uh, I, I'm probably still in a place where I'm a little bit more hesitant on spontaneous baptism. Um, it's something that our, our, our elders at our church have considered and at this point have just said, listen, barring like an act of God that is very clear and evident, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're going to hold off on that. But I do think there, I mean, when we think about spontaneous baptism, I don't know what you'd call the story with Philip and the Ethiopian yeah. unit if it's not a spontaneous baptism. So I think that there is like a paradigm for it. I just do think that in the, in at least in our church, I would imagine it will be the exception, not the norm. Um, and I think for many churches, that's probably a good and healthy direction to go in. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there, listen, Becky, to your, to the question of like the trickiness around baptism, I, I think J, the way JT started 
is the right way to kind of land the plane here, which is like baptism is beautiful. And the church has had, uh, uh, there are variety of views on baptism, um, but there is a beautiful message that's there in baptism, which is that God is saving for himself a holy and beloved people. uh, And that we're invited into that kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus. Uh, And baptism is a picture of undergoing that transformation and that process, whether uh, the hoped for promise or the promise fulfilled. So I, I do think that there is much to be encouraged by in baptism, even in the various modes, so to speak, of expression of baptism. Um, what? Okay, we got this question a few different times, and it's a it's a new question. We've never gotten it before, and I was surprised at how many times it came in. It made me think. I. I think there must be a blog or a tweet thread out there that was referencing it because I'm so far out of that space now, but it was asked a lot of different ways. What is God's view on cursing? Like swear words, oh, profanity. And you know what came up? It came up a couple of times, Jen, that you wrote a blog on this. I did. I, and I did not know this, but it, it was mentioned at least three times ac- across five different forms of this question uh, that uh, you had written on this and they found it very helpful. Huh. And they were asking us, what is God's view on cursing or profanity? I was unaware that you had written on this at one point. And maybe you're thinking Years at this point, ago. I wish, Okay. It's fascinating to me that someone <laughs> dug that up out of the archives. Um, yeah, it's it's out there. The internet never forgets. The internet never forgets. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I don't want to speak for God, uh, but I will say <laughs> what, uh, I mean, my personal views on it. And I, I do just want to, I don't, I don't ever want to put myself out there to be a perfect person practitioner of the view I'm about to articulate. I also, when I stub my toe, occasionally say words that I wish I didn't um, or in Mm -hmm. a moment of frustration. But I think the thing, you know, that we're seeing, at least that I'm seeing, so like when I sit down to watch a show, you know, it's like every other word, it's like you cannot get away from, um, from it. And so I do think it's an easy, it is low hanging fruit in terms of being salt and light. Uh, in fact, you know, mm-hmm. I think we talked about it. Maybe they're asking about it because we talked about Ted Lasso, I think, at one point. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I pointed out that even though that is a show that has a great deal of swearing, you know, because it's done in a British accent, it's charming instead of, no, I'm just kidding. That wasn't what I said. Um, but <laughs> but it is actually a little true. But that Ted himself does not, you don't hear him swear. And and you yep. you recognize just how he stands out because of the absence of swearing, which I think is fascinating. And that has kind of been my line on it all along is that swearing, if you're in in regular daily use, which is not to say I'm saying you should use it sparingly and well, I'm just saying that in regular daily use, it is lazy speech, um, that it, it's, it's the, it tends to be the product of a lazy mind. It also, uh, garners attention. It's, it's, um, I think in the terms of like where the Bible speaks about not swearing an oath, obviously they're not talking about profanity, but profanity mm-hmm. does is a subcategory of that in this, in the sense that it adds emphasis to an idea that may not even merit the emphasis. Like it's a way of grandstanding or at this point, it's just a way of blending in because it's become so prevalent. And so it just is very, it's, it's probably one of the easiest ways to look different than the world around us because I don't know if you've ever known someone who's a compulsive swearer, but they're magically able to completely shut that down when they're around their parents or someone they don't want to know that they're a compulsive <laughs> swearer. So it doesn't even take that much self-control to stop doing it if you're using it in daily speech. And then I, you know, when we I do think when we when we stub our toe or get frustrated, we find out how high our tolerance is for dealing with anger Mm -hmm. in the moment because it's angry speech. I think that's the other thing we need to say about it. It's almost always fueled by anger. And we live in a, in a culture of outrage. Yeah. And I think that really gets to the heart of the matter and pun intended, which is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks is what scripture says. And I do think that while there is, uh, I think there are very strong arguments to make just for the impropriety of cursing or swearing or, or the indelicacy of it or the foolishness of it or the laziness of it. I think the deeper question is from where has this come? Yep. 
Where has it come from? Um, and that's not to say that one sh- there's a purity of heart that can lead one to swear. I'm not suggesting that. I am saying that uh, the question that the believer is asking when speech is happening mm-hmm. is from whence has this come? Mm-hmm. Where has this come from? Mm-hmm. Where has it emerged from and why? That's really the question. Um, and I think that that's worth investigating um, before we get into the tactics of what words are in bounds right. and out of bounds. Right. Because you can start kind of splicing this in weird ways. Uh, and I don't, I'm not going to give examples because I don't know where everybody's spectrum would be. But there are some people for whom there is a word that's like uh, that, uh, that they fi- find perfectly acceptable, respectful, or benefit in using that another person might be like, that's incredibly indelicate. Like there are words that my grandmother would not want me to say that my mother would be totally fine with me Mm -hmm. saying. There are words that my mother would not uh, want me to say that my wife would be totally fine with my using. Uh, And so like, there's a spectrum here. And I think the larger question is the question of the heart. Like, why are you saying what you're saying? Right. Where has it come from? Yeah. Uh, JT, anything to add here? No, I agree with both of you guys. I think okay. I, the word the word that comes to mind for me is just it's cheap. Jen mm-hmm. used the word lazy. It's a, it's almost a cheap form of intellectualism. Like people, I think, can assume if you're using a curse word, you really thought about this, you're really passionate about it. But you probably haven't, and you probably are just outraged, and it's a cheap way to gain attention. Yeah. There we go. Uh, Maxi asks, Kyle, how does your Christian faith shape what kind of wrestling fan you are? Uh, well, in really meaningful ways, Maxi, this is the question we've all been waiting for. <laughs> no, I mean, if you're, if you mean it as a joke, then it's a good one. If you mean it seriously, then like there are some forms of wrestling I won't watch because they're inappropriate. They're like in, they're beyond performance. They're indelicate and unrighteous in a way that I'm not going to be party to. So yeah, there are kinds of wrestling, like there are kinds of shows or movies or music that just for me cross the line into a place of intemperance. Uh, I'm not interested in it. So I won't tell you what those kind of wrestling all, are. All wrestling crosses that line for me. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, some can eat the meat offered to idols and others cannot, you know? Uh, no, but uh, it's a fun question, Maxie. Uh, okay, turning in a hard turn, uh, we get a question from uh, one of the Instagram handles that I could not deduce the name of. Um, what is the purpose of speaking in tongues? So boom, left field. We well, I think we have a variety to- of uh, answers on this, don't we, Kyle? I think we probably do. <laughs> I think we probably do. Let me just say this. I'm, I'm currently preaching seven sermons on the spiritual gifts at Mosaic right now. And I feel like I have read everything that there is on tongues and I'm coming up scratching my head. Truthfully, I don't think that there is another spiritual gift that is as interesting and confounding as tongues, which means we should be really, really careful with the degree of confidence we have when we answer the question, what is the purpose of speaking in tongues? Because it's the only gift that Paul says explicitly is is better for the self than it is for other people. It's the only gift that requires interpretation. Um, It's the only gift that Paul prohibits in the gathering apart from interpretation. It's probably the outside, unless you include teaching as a part of this, teaching is the most cautioned spiritual gift in the New Testament. If you take all that the New Testament says about teaching, what's required of it, the cautions, who can do it, who shouldn't do it, what you should say, it's the most cautioned spiritual gift. Outside of teaching, though— in the spiritual gifts list that we have, tongues is far and away the most cautioned spiritual gift of all the spiritual gifts. And I think that's because Paul knows it can be really, really confusing, and it can create a lot of confusion and maybe some damage if practiced improperly and in a disorderly way. So I think it's really important that when we think about tongues, we realize like Paul has more cautions about tongues than he does about any other spiritual gift in the spiritual gift list. Do you have a, as you've been reading about it, do you have a source that's been more helpful than others that you might point people toward? that we could drop in the show notes. You don't even have to say it right now. We could that would be a way to like let people know the show notes are out there. 
Yeah, the show notes are out there. I'll think about it. I got to tell you, I'm just not happy with anything. I'm not happy enough with anything I've read to be like, go read this book mm-hmm. and take it, take everything it says seriously. Um, I think there's, uh, I'll say this about tongues. It does appear that uh, at Pentecost, that the tongues that are on display there are existing languages. Well, big question with tongues is whether any practice of tongues is uh, uh, actual human languages that are unknown to the speaker at the time of the speaking. That's one form uh, of tongues. That seems to be what's happening at Pentecost. The other question, uh, the other op- option is that there is what uh, Paul says in First Corinthians twelve through fourteen, angelic speech or angelic tongues, which this would be not human languages, um, some sort of angelic, ecstatic language, so to speak. And it does appear that maybe both of those, in my view, are operating in the course of the New Testament. There are many cautions towards the public display of tongues. Paul's clear that nobody should be speaking in tongues over one another. Oftentimes in hyper-charismatic situations, there are whole congregations of people speaking in tongues at the same time. I think that is clearly forbidden and prohibited in 1 Corinthians 14. I think it is very clear. Paul is saying it very clearly, don't speak over one another in tongues. He is saying very clearly, if a tongue is spoken publicly, it must like it must be accompanied by an interpretation. If there's not an interpreter present, then you should not be speaking in tongues publicly. Um, and th- there's also the question of <clears throat> what is the purpose of tongues? And I think Paul is saying that the purpose of tongues is prayer and praise that is meant for the glory of God and the edification of the believer and can be interpreted for the good of the church, but should not be spoken publicly if not given an interpretation. I think those are some of the guardrails. That's all. That's, I think that's all I can really say. I think that's all I'm prepared to say on uh, speaking in tongues. It's meant for prayer and praise. It, if it's going to be done publicly, it should be done in an orderly way, uh, accompanied by an interpretation and not over one another. And that the tongues might be existing human languages as it seems it was at Pentecost, but there is space in First Corinthians for it to not be existing human languages, but something like what is called angelic speech. What that is, I'm not so sure of. Is there anything you guys want to add to that? Anything you take issue with in that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> JT makes a squeaky noise. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I honestly, that your answer surprised me a little bit based upon some of our conversations in the past. Not like, I'm not surprised by the position that you're currently holding, but no, I don't think I'd add a lot to that. Jen? Uh, yeah, I differ in some ways, but I don't think I need to get on t- into that right now. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Anna asks, how long after Jesus's death did the priest stop offering sacrifices? I don't know the answer to this. I saw this question, I think, on Instagram or something like that, and I thought, I need to Google that before the show, and now I'm realizing I did not do I that. know what my guess would be. Uh, what? 70 AD. That, that's my guess, too. I think that makes sense. Well, tell them why. But it is them. a little surprising that they kept doing it and that the apostles kept going. Like, they kept going to the temple. Well, I don't think it's surprising they did the keep priests would to worship. keep doing it, right? Because they didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. But the apostles still going is interesting. It is interesting. I the priests, the priests didn't recognize it, but like you think about like Joseph of Arimathea, is he showing up? I'm gonna say yeah. I I think so too. I think that's just the weird hinge moment yeah. of that part of that portion of the history of redemption, where like Christianity isn't even really identified yet as like a a non Jewish thing. Yeah. It's still like associated with like a strain of Judaism. Now that I know that sounds crazy yeah. for us to say, but that like. The, I don't think that Peter is walking around not seeing himself as Jewish any longer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I think he's like, I am a true Israelite. And I don't know. It does uh, seem that they're still going to the temples. And then even in the Gentile mission, they're going to the synagogues. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul still showed right. up. At, now, are the sacrifices being offered in the synagogue? Certainly not to the degree to which they're being offered in the temple. Yeah. But yeah. Well, but Jen, why did you say your guess was 80, 70? Because maybe Anna doesn't know why that date would be significant for this question. Yeah. In 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman army and then it, it wasn't rebuilt. Right. And so even if they were offering, I mean, I would imagine 
I don't know. I actually don't know what happened after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD in terms of temple practice. Did it happen anywhere? Does anybody know? Outside of the temple? Yeah, like did they have like a... Uh, this is a good question. Maybe alternate I don't location? I, I don't even know how to yeah. say this. An overflow worship <laughs> oh service? Oh my gosh, an alternate <laughs> worship venue? Yeah. You, know what? I, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I need to look into that. Like I, I, that's my, like, right when I read this question, I thought AD 72 for the very reason you mentioned, but Jen, I, I'm curious, like, I'm curious whether for a season they did still offer sacrifices in a different place and where would that place have been? It also makes me wonder about like, I, I know we make a joke about like alternate worship venues, but like there's a lot of Jews who, who like, you think about like Masada in Southern Israel. This is a fortress that they developed and built and basically tried to outlast the Roman army just by kind of hanging in there and, and, and eventually they're mm-hmm. overtaken. But I think they, they were there for like a decade and it's hard for me to imagine them not offering sacrifices yeah. in some sense. Yeah, that's right. I need to look into that. I don't know the answer. Anna, that's a really great yeah, question. That's a good question. I think, I think AD 70 is, we can definitely say they were not offering sacrifices in the temple after AD 70 because that temple yeah. was destroyed. If they were offering sacrifices elsewhere... We don't know. We need to look into that. Great question, Anna. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. What's a time, JT and Jen, where you've been unexpectedly encouraged by the church, by a brother or sister in Christ, by just the interesting work of the Spirit? Well, Kyle, you encouraged me even just this season. I You had all those people come on, um, mm. and I think you're generally an encouraging presence. Mm. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love I love to see people encouraged. Yeah. Just for those who don't know Kyle, um, that was not an outlier moment when he had uh, planned something to make me feel special. He did it also when my mother passed away. Um, it was one of the most meaningful things someone's ever done for me. He had a book put together of uh, memories mm-hmm. of her that he went online and found, uh, things I didn't even know. He told I learned things about my own mother when Kyle gave me this book. Uh, it was really, really sweet. So, yeah. There you go, Kyle. I just did to you what you did to me, where you're sitting there looking I know, uncomfortable. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like I was not I, didn't, I was not expecting that answer, but I am now unexpectedly encouraged. Well, and I mean, also JT. <laughs> JT knows um, at various points in our relationship, really pivotal moments yeah. where I was on the brink of one decision or another or feeling really discouraged. Um, JT has said, you can do this and you can keep going. So I'd say the two of you, I hear, I hear a lot of encouragement from people who've maybe read a book of mine or something like that, which is, 
really meaningful to me. Uh, it really is. I never, people always say they apologize before they say it. And I'm like, you should never apologize for offering encouragement to someone, especially someone who's in ministry oh, sure. leadership. But also I'd say you two have been a huge encouragement to me um, over over the last, you know, six, eight years where, where you know, you have that day and you're like, I don't know, this is hard. Um, and yeah, JT, right. I'd always be like, JT, I'm going to cry. So just get ready. <laughs> <laughs> and you never once were like, oh my gosh, pull it together. You know, you you, you guys received me as I came in the room. Uh, and so, yeah. I love that. And hopefully yeah. we always will. And you did for us too. I think I think one of the fun things about like ministry, I, I feel deeply encouraged in ministry right now. Like my church is happy. My elders, I feel like my mm-hmm. staff's happy. Like there's deep encouragement. And But outside of that, whether it's knowing faith or other projects that we have, it's really fun to get like little notes and mm-hmm. emails. And yeah. Like yeah. I, so those, those happen and, and that's awesome. But I, I want to kind of just triple down on what you guys have said is encouragement really is meant to best happen in the context of relationships and deep sure. friendship. Yeah. And like when you see all of somebody, you're like, oh man, I, I know Kyle and Jen and they know mm-hmm. me and yet they still want to encourage me and I desire mm-hmm. to encourage them. And I think I, I was talking to my church a few weeks ago about encouragement. And I just said, like, it was kind of a funny moment, but I was like, who here has too much encouragement? You know, because we can right. kind of think, like, everybody else is walking around encouraged. I'm the big downer over here. And the reality is, is everybody everybody yeah. is in need of encouragement. That's and right. It's something that's so easy mm-hmm. to do, to just mm-hmm. tell somebody, I see you, you're doing a great job. And you guys have certainly done that for me in ways that I, I think encouragement is best done, I mean, it's awesome to have those big moments of encouragement, but it's also just best done with like kind of just little sprinkles of salt over the course of a lifetime of like, keep going, keep going. You're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. I see you. Your work matters. So, and you guys have done that for me. Yeah. I love that. Hey, so if you're listening to this, take a moment today and unexpectedly encourage somebody. Mm-hmm. It'll be a blessing to them and a blessing to you. Dennis asks, can you explain limited atonement and the thought behind this doctrine? Sure, Dennis. <laughs> Who wants to start here? I think JT. <laughs> JT wants to yeah, do Yeah, JT. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. I think it's important because, like, this this doctrine can be used as, a like, weapon, a bludgeoning yeah. tool to yeah. – And that's not – that's not n- – none of us believe in limited atonement in that way. And what we – I also don't love the term limited atonement because in some sense – I think it communicates something that it isn't trying to communicate, like – what is limited about the atonement and what all three of us would believe is that the atonement has unlimited Mm -hmm. aspects of it. And I even think we would probably articulate this a little bit differently, but it's, we're talking about an in the infinite son of God dying an infinite death. And so there are infinite and unlimited elements of the atonement. The question about the limitations of the atonement, I, I think are better communicated by using language like particular redemption. That's the language I would use. So we're talking kind of about what the five points of Calvinism would be, total depravity, unconditional election, particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And this one, kind of the, they, 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 a lot of people will say, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist, not five. This mm-hmm. is the one that most people kind of uh, argue about or, or perhaps disagree with. And so let me tell you what I think is particular about the redemption. And if somebody wants to read something really helpful on this, uh, J.I. Packer has an introduction to John yeah. Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ that I think is the best short form explanation of what particular redemption is. And the basic idea is, is that everybody in some sense believes in particular redemption or else you become a universalist is basically what Packer argues in this article is that it is, it is limited in the sense of it does not become efficacious for all people. Could it be efficacious for all people? Yes, because it's unlimited in its in, in its nature, because it's the Son of God who dies on the cross or in, in the form of the person of Christ. However, it's particular in that it is applied specifically to the church and not to all people. And so let me see if I can find like a this – is, this feels – please hear me. Obviously, the atonement is much more um, – beautiful than the example I'm about to use, but sometimes this example helps. If Kyle owed me $5, which by the way, Kyle, I think you do <laughs> owe me five, probably more I, than I, that. I, I think I owe you far more than $5, <laughs> honestly. Okay. Whatever, whatever sum of money Kyle owes me, uh, let's say it's $5, $10, whatever. And Jen steps in as the substitute to pay Kyle's fee or his fine or his debt to me. And I receive it. Jen gives me $5 on Kyle's behalf. Does Kyle still owe me $5? Unlimited atonement would have to say, uh, yes, in a sense, because Kyle, I, I could still go to Kyle and say, well, you have, you have to pay me for this. 
And I would then therefore be unjust by receiving a double payment for sin. If Christ's death is unlimited in its efficacious nature, meaning it being effective for all people, but yet people still suffer eternally, separated from God because of their sin and because they don't receive Christ as Savior, then God is not only receiving the payment of the Son of God at the cross, he's also receiving the just penalty of those who will be separated from him, making God unjust. So the reason I believe in particular redemption is because Christ's death is effective to save. doesn't just make salvation possible, but it actually uh, saves those whom Christ died for. Does that make sense? That's the answer. That was really good. That's really good. I, and I, the only thing I add to this is that limited atonement has a brand problem. Uh, it, like the, I find that the moment I go, don't call it limited atonement. Let's call it complete atonement. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. the, and, then, and then I explain it. They're like, oh yeah, that makes yeah. sense. But the idea of mm-hmm. limited, like God's love is not limited. Right. Nobody That's in right. the limit. No, nobody. The people who eat, sleep, and breathe limited atonement, do not believe that God is limited either in his capacity to love nor in the depth of love he has for his people. Nobody believes that, okay? Or at least if they do, they're not Christians, okay? But the idea that like that God's atonement, a very visible historical event that's driven by God's love is limited, that rubs people the wrong way. But the moment you take out that limited word and say it's complete atonement, he actually accomplished something there, people all of a sudden start, oh, okay, that that sounds better. And it does. It's kind of like total depravity where people hear that and they're mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not an ax murderer. And it's like, well, that's not what right. the term means. Right. So, you know, maybe we that's could a, do a whole rebrand right. for it or... Yeah, for Tulip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's just try that. Brad, can you get on that? And just for anyone who's lost uh, the thread here, we we are not recruiting to a you know we're 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 reformed, but not recruiting is the way we would sometimes describe ourselves. Great, that's great. Uh, I'm going to use that. I've never heard that before. Uh, Then I'm glad I could just say that uh, on your behalf. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Kyle's Kyle's always recruiting. I've I've been recruiting for speaking of recruiting. I've got this book called Pitfalls. Yeah, no. Let's just let me just double down on that a little because I, you know, people, I'll get the question every now and then, like, hey, what is your, you know, are you reformed? Because I don't know if I want to read your books or do your stuff. And I'm like, read, do or don't read my books or do my stuff, whatever that. But, but it's a secondary, you know, it is, it's a secondary Mm -hmm. issue. And so, um, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to boil over about it. That's really good. Justin on Facebook, I've been in worship ministry in some capacity for 15 years now, and I've sang and helped lead the church and singing more worship songs than I can remember. I've noticed that worship, like any ministry, I'm sure goes through seasons and that certain songs resonate in the church more or less in those seasons. In this season, what is a worship song that you or your church have latched onto or that you've latched onto in your personal worship and why? Um, okay. Yeah, that's really good. Um, that's a great question. Um, the, the, are, they, are the, they asking for like a new song, Kyle? I missed that. No, I think it can be any song, like any worship song. Um, for me right now, I don't know why this is other than that. I think it's a fantastic song is it's a Keith and Kristen Getty's by faith. Mm. I love this song. It comes like in seasonally, it comes back in a big way. And I find myself listening to it over and over and over again. So Keith and Kristen Getty, it's an older song that they did. Um, and they haven't like re-released it or something. I just kind of return to it seasonally. Um, and I feel like once a year for like two months, it's like the song. And then I try to convince my worship leader to do it. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Gettys perform, but they're like an Irish Celtic worship group. And they have like 25 instrumentalists playing the most obscure instruments <laughs> you've ever seen. And my worship leader is always like, we can't do this song. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you think that we have, but we don't have like lute players at Mosaic mm-hmm. right now. So we can't pull it off. But I, I personally love this song. So By Faith by Keith and Kristen Getty. That's my favorite song right now. What do you got, JT? Uh, I'm happy to go. I love Psalm 34. I love it when Shane and Shane do it. And I also love it when the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir does it. Oh, yeah. There we go. Uh, Similarly, like I've sent it to my worship leader. I'm like, we should do it like Brooklyn Tab does. And he's like, we cannot do it. Exactly. Yeah. But we sang that at my, the Lord has used that song in my life at different seasons. Psalm 34, specifically at my father in law who since passed when I first became a Christian. Mm gave me a book with Psalm 34 in it. Like he wrote it and I was like, Oh, what's that? Like, I didn't know the Bible well. So Mm -hmm. I read it. And then over the course of my life, Oh, magnify Mm -hmm. the Lord with me. Let us exalt in his name together, uh, is a meaningful Mm -hmm. verse for me. And then we did that at my installation here. The Lord used it. And sometimes in my life at TVC. So I would say Psalm 34. That's the verse Jeff and I have in our wedding bands. Really? Is it really? Yeah. 
So you, so you have to say that song yeah. too, right? Yeah. So <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but the one that's really been um, ministering to me is the doxology. And I want to say why. I'm studying Revelation right now, and I was at the very end of the book, and it's talking about the river that flows from the throne. And I was realizing mm. that's the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, praise Him, all creatures mm. here below. Mm. That's what you see in Revelation. Praise Him above you, heavenly host. It's the it's the whole vision of Revelation all wrapped up in the doxology. It's the it's the heavenly vision that you see elsewhere. I mean, it's in Ezekiel, it's other places too. But uh, and I just had always thought, oh, it's just a nice thing that you sing at the end of the service that says some true things, but it's about the consummation of the kingdom. So uh, every time I sing it now, that's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking. There's this. Let me let me go on a tiny mini rant. Uh, it's not a rant, but I read a. Eh, it might be. I read a really interesting article about <laughs> worship music and how it um, shows up in our churches now versus the way it would have previously, and how um, you know before you had the internet and and the easy dissemination of new music, even when contemporary songs were being written, they had a much longer life cycle in the church than they do now. And so that, you know, you go to a worship conference and hear what the new songs were, and they might last for two years or four years. And now I think it's like three months is the longest that songs tend to be utilized in a lot of churches. And so uh, the person who was writing the article was making the point, and if that's the case, then when we gather in a hospital room uh, to sing around someone's uh, bedside as they're dying, what is our shared hymnal, basically? And so I thought that was mm-hmm. a really compelling thought. I'm not saying that old songs are the only ones that are worth singing, but if I were leading worship at a church, I would be asking, what is our shared body of songs that we can all, if we just got together and didn't have lyrics on the screen or didn't have a sound system, what could we all sing together um, as our shared language of song? That's good. That's a great question. I love mm-hmm. that. Uh, let's end with this one. I love this question. Uh, and it applies to a larger audience than the, than the question that is how it's phrased. But how can a young adult maintain a strong passion for the word of God over a lifetime? That's a really good question. There wasn't a name that I could decipher uh, for this one, but whoever asked it, I love the question. <laughs> how can a young adult maintain a strong passion for the word of God over a lifetime? Let me start with this. You're going to have seasons where you don't have a lot of passion for the word of God. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's normal. It's normal. Um, there are many mornings where I wake up to read God's word and not all the lights are on. Like, I don't mean like like literally in my house. I mean, like I'm not like coming to the Bible eagerly and I'm not leaving it feeling like immediately gratified. You know, um, I've joked about the historical books on here, but when my Bible reading plan gets to the minor <laughs> prophets or the historical books, I got to tell you, I, I believe it's God's word. I'm, uh, I believe it's working on me. I believe there are things for me to learn and I will learn them occasionally. But then there are times where I'm like, what did I just do for 20 minutes? You know? <laughs> so before we give you like, like here are some ways you can maintain a strong passion for the word of God over a lifetime. I'll just say first, it's going to dip. It's going to ebb and flow. There are seasons where it's not, you're not going to have the same eagerness. That's normal. The second thing is prayer. Mm-hmm. Just ask God, God, would you give me a desire to hear and heed your word? Mm-hmm. Like, just ask him. I want to. I want your word to be sweeter to me than honey on my lips. I want to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Make it the counsel of my waking and my sleeping. Ask him for it. So I think those would be a couple of things. And then read it. Read it regularly. Read it habitually. Read it routinely. Read it when no one's watching. Read it when you don't want to read it. And just keep reading it. And it like running water over rocks. You don't see... You don't always see the formation of the rocks on the riverbed, not in real time, but over years and years and years, that running water and those creeks and rivers, it shapes those rocks. It forms them. It changes them. And a a lot of Bible reading is like that, just running water over rocks. You don't feel it in a day, but over years, it begins to shape you in fresh ways. I would second what Kyle said. I would say, I'm going to say it a little differently because this young adult who's asking, I want you to remember this when the day comes where it didn't meet a need, but don't read the Bible therapeutically. 
Um, don't read it asking it to make you feel a certain way. Um, it will make you feel certain ways, but and don't panic if it makes you feel a way that you think it shouldn't. Um, that is probably showing, like if you feel panic when you read something or fear when you read this or you find yourself asking the question, how can God be good if this is in here? Take a deep breath and remember that you are not the first person to feel that way. And um, so that would lead to my second point, and that is don't read it alone. Like read it alone, but don't only read it alone. The best way to have an ongoing practice of being in the scriptures is to have buddies. In my opinion. So, Mm -hmm. again, you know, I've mentioned this on other um, episodes, but the two biggest challenges I think for this current iteration of church, this generation, are the two eyes that I want to gouge out, and that's individualism and instant gratification. And so, think about Mm -hmm. those as they relate to your your Bible practices. If you require instant gratification in the form of a positive emotion when you read, or in the form of an instant insight that you can take away, then your Bible reading is going to disappoint you. And then, secondly, if you require um, that it say something to you personally every single time. Or that your personal practice be bigger than your shared practice, then I think you're also going to come up short. But I, th- I think that there is huge fruit to be gained from practicing a long-term view in community of reading the scriptures in combination with the time that you're spending alone with the scriptures. It's good. I don't think I have a lot to add to that, but I want to just say one thing, doubling down on both what Kyle and Jen already said, that I'm seeing happen at our church right now that isn't a philosophy of ministry, it's not a strategy, it just happened. Uh, because of who's at our church. We have a huge number of young adults coming to our church right now. And we have a, like, the, and we're like, we have like probably three to 400 college students and we're like a long way away from a college. And we've got a lot of older adults. And so specifically around community, if you're a young adult and you're thinking about, man, I want to love my Bible when I'm 60, 70, 80, 90, get around 60, 70, yeah. 80, 90 year olds who still mm-hmm. love their Bible. Like it is great to have buddies that are your young adult mm-hmm. friends and they love like that's yes. And amen. You should be reading with any kind of community, but specific, like, I love looking at the people coming into my church who like, you can tell the Bible that they're holding is like 60 years mm-hmm. old and it's like falling apart and they've got pictures of their grandkids in there and there's tears on their Bible. And there, there's like, that's the kind of people that I, if I was, I, I'm so, I'm, can, can I call myself a young adult? Somebody <laughs> called me middle-aged recently. I was like, I'm 37. What do you think middle-aged is? Uh, nevertheless. Four. <laughs> I just think, yeah, that's right. Okay, good. I received that. Uh, I I want to be around people, and I don't need to be around Bible scholars. Like, it doesn't need to be, hey, have you done the exegesis right on Romans? It's like, I want to be around somebody who's prayed through Romans 10 times because their spouse was going through a health issue, whatever it might be. And so older saints who've done it get around those people. That's good. Listen— Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Thank you for asking great questions. I know you asked more questions than we were able to address, and that's a testament to the quality of your questions and the depth of them. So thank you. Um, if you felt like, hey, there are a couple of your responses where it feels like you guys are still learning, guess what? Mm. Spoiler, we still are. Uh, and that's part of what we're doing here on this show. There are going to be times when we say, we don't know. Like to Anna's great question, now I got to go and like figure out like what was happening with sacrifices yeah. after AD 70. Yeah. I'm learning from Anna. She asks a great question. Keep asking great questions and realize our goal on knowing faith is not for you to download our theology every week, but to learn to think theologically and biblically about everything. That's what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to be like every Thursday, here's your little daily dose or weekly dose of the right theology to have. We're helping you learn how to think biblically and theologically about everything. You can do this. This is the end of season 10 for us. Although in true Knowing Faith fashion, it's not really the end. We've got some summer releases coming. <laughs> At this point, I think the audience has just grown accustomed to realizing that when I say this wraps up the season, everybody knows I'm just lying. <laughs> At this point, um, we do have we it's do like have just a uh, marker to say we're going to keep going. It's, it's like, true. It's Basically, it's like loop. it's formally the end of season ten. We do have some extra special stuff that's going to come out this summer. Uh, if you want to find us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Leave us a review 
over at Apple Podcast. A lot of people ask us, they'll reach out on social media, how can I help this show? Let me give you two practical ways. If you want Knowing Face audience to grow or if you want to contribute to what we're doing, you can leave us a review. I know that sounds crazy. I know it does, but the internet is a weird place and if you leave a review on Apple podcast, it helps other people find the show. So negative, positive, leave a review over there and it will help other people find the show. So if you want to help, you can do that. You can also go to trainthechurch.com slash support where you can find out some ways that you can jump in and help invest in us creating more resources and more podcasts like this. I do have some just kind of like look for these in the future kind of announcements. We have a really cool, really big project coming up that is all kind of lined out on paper. And now we are just putting the finishing touches on and then we'll start working on over the next year or two years. It's something a lot of you have asked for and we can't formally announce it just yet, but it's really big and really cool. And I think you're going to be really excited about it. JT and Jen have a book coming out uh, called You Are a Theologian. So check that out. What is the release date for that, guys? It's pre-order right now. July. I think it's July. July. July 18th, I think specifically. So in the middle of the summer, if you're like, man, I need some Knowing Faith episodes. Well, there are some that are going to be printed and bound in this thing called a book, and you can find them. Um, they're not really Knowing Faith episodes, but you should check it out. You Are a Theologian coming out in July. If you want to find out how uh, what we have going on with Train the Church, cohort. Uh, uh, registration is open right now. Applications are open for our fall cohort session. You can go to trainthechurch.com, find out all the information you want to find out about a cohort that we run twice a year. It's a blast. We've worked with hundreds of leaders across hundreds of churches, and it's a lot of fun to do it. So go check out trainthechurch.com. Next season, we'll launch August uh, of 2023. We're really excited about that. Uh, we have a new podcast that's launching in the fall of 2023, Tiny Theologians with Amy Gannett. We're really excited about this. There'll be a summer release episode with me and Amy that's kind of showcasing what this show is going to be. The, uh, that, uh, that podcast launches in the fall of 2023. It is a podcast for kids. It is a narrative theological journey. And I'm really excited about with characters and stories and songs. It's going to be a blast. That is coming fall 2023. You should check out our sister shows. If you haven't been following along with Family Discipleship, Confronting Christianity, or the brand new Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, go check those out. They are really doing some special stuff over there. Check out those podcasts. Uh, we've got summer surprises for you. And if you want to come see us in person, we will be at the Gospel Coalition Conference in 2023. We'll be doing a live recording of Knowing Faith with our season sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, and we'll also be doing another breakout session on training the church and how your church can help build deep disciples. So come hang out with us at TGC 2023 this fall. That is a wrap for season 10. You're the best audience in podcasting. Keep it that way. Bless you. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. <laughs>